0: Dan Safarik, and you're listening to Unfrozen. Today, our guest is Shi Chao Li. He is uh, the Whedon Professor in Asia Architecture School of Architecture at the University of Virginia, where he teaches history, theory, and design of architecture and directs the PhD in the Constructed Environment Program. He is the co author of a book called Typological Drift, Emerging Cities in China. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Shu Thank you, Daniel, and welcome, everybody. So this is a really interesting book. Um, it's sort of it, there's there's lots of books out there, lots of study out there about the you know rapid growth of Chinese urbanism, and you know in some ways uh, this falls into that category. But you've broken it into some uh, pretty distinct. Uh, theses, which are uh, not common in, in the study of urbanism. Um, first, there's this idea of drift. Perhaps you can explain what drift is, as you're understanding it, um, and how it relates to biology, and then how it relates to urbanism. Sure, um, drift is something uh, that
1: I that that we thought about. Uh, that that's a, a concept that might be appropriate to, to describe what was what, what has been going on in Chinese urbanism in this past um, four decades um, we tend to see uh, urban phenomena uh, uh, you know among so many other things that's taken place and change in life as somewhat uh, kinds of influences, and we never quite know how to describe the nature of these influences. So the typical way to frame influence is that one thing that produced kind of offsprings uh, in, um, uh, in other things, in other places. So uh, without, you know, kind of thinking it deliberately, uh, we, we tend to use concepts like mutation, change, uh, migration and so on. So uh, we um, wanted to look at this phenomenon in, a, in a, you know, with with more focus, and we will try. You know, we try to kind of think through with um, different modes of biological change, and we thought that the idea of drift, which is diff, you know, distinct from uh, mutation, migration, and adaptation. Uh, is is interesting because because it is both um, describing a biological phenomenon but also a um, uh, has an ability to describe accidents um, drift in biology really means that uh, something uh, accidental unplanned event happened to uh, the process of change that critically and, and uh, irreversibly shaped something. And the typical uh, example is uh, to imagine that process as a, a a fat big truck running through a field of bugs of various colors, and only the yellow ones survive. And um, that is a kind of a process of drift.
0: Well, certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese economy over the last two decades has been something of a juggernaut. So I can sort of picture it that way uh, of like a, a, a giant entity that's sort of careering through space. And, you know, it, it's not it, there, so many things that are happening are unprecedented that there's no real good way to predict it. So um this idea of a drift trigger, then, um, you've broken the book into three portions. Uh one is called 10,000 things or wanwu. Um, one is called figuration, and the third one's called group action. What what are what are drift triggers? What does that mean? A drift trigger uh as a as a concept
1: does not come from the biology. We actually kind of uh uh, created in a way uh, to, to describe um, uh, events that, that, that's normatively described as the bottleneck effect uh, in, in, uh, in the definition of drift. And what it is, is, is really a constriction of something uh, in the process of normative change. And so the ideas do not flow freely, unrestricted, and they do flow so that's really is the tricky thing to understand so what we wanted to do was to imagine uh, uh, a number of ways in which ideas flow but also restricted by something to the extent that that it is no longer clear whether the idea originate, originated from one place or the other and um, so, so the, the, the uh, triggers were imagined in that sense. And we thought about the whole uh, Chinese culture and civilizational forces and thought that these three aspects, uh, which uh, each of them actually runs pretty deep into the cultural and psychological makeup of uh, the Chinese civilization. Um, would be three very good ways of understanding the bottleneck effects of uh, in the process of transmission of urban ideas.
0: Okay, so then maybe maybe the way to move into these ideas is to talk a little bit about how, uh, well, how they're substantiated through some of the examples that you provide. Um, so in 10,000 things, for example, Uh, You talk about a couple of places, a couple of cities, substantial cities, but all of which seem to have a sort of almost a singular purpose, commercially speaking, uh, around which the entirety of the society seems to be organized. Um, There's Yiwu, which has a a merchandise mart-like quality at massive scale. In fact, you use the example of the Chicago Merchandise Mart, uh, which happens to be where I'm located, not in the building, but in the city. Uh, as as an example, and Yiwu's like a, a merchandise mart writ large uh, in some ways on a giant grid. There's a Shintang, which uh, which you refer to uh, as a stitch city um, as it's involved in, I believe, the creation of garments. And then Gurao, which is even more so, uh, specifically centered around underwear. <laughs> it's like the underwear assembly capital of the world. Um, so how do these typologies come about, and and what makes you think of the, the 10,000 things idea as an overarching concept for them?
1: Yeah. Uh, maybe I can explain this in two steps. And step number one is really to understand the theory of numbers in the Chinese cultural context. Uh, the concept of 10,000 things comes from the Chinese word, which is a normative way, uh, almost like kind of... Ex- Abstract way to describe everything that that's ever existed in the world There's a way of describing um, the world itself. But but it is really not the same as, say, the ancient Greeks describes you know described the world in terms of mathematical principles and rules and geometrical shapes. You know, typically Platonic shapes and 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 his uh, proportional theory uh, over there in the Greek uh, civilizational framework, uh, if you like. And uh, I, I, see, I see the Western world as, in, as uh, a world that carries that legacy uh, in imagining how many things in the world. Uh, in that framework, <clears throat> uh, it is important to imagine a mathematical principle i.e. there's a process of reduction of the larger set of numbers to a smaller set of numbers, is how mathematics works. Uh, <clears throat> uh, in the field of urbanism or architecture, uh, that means a, some kind of capturing of that smaller set of numbers as the essence of something. you know, This is really the Greek ontology manifested in architecture and urbanism. This is interesting because we tend to think that this is the way to think about the world, or the only way to think about the world, or is it? So that's really is the question. If you actually look at how the Chinese uh, cultural framework works, um, it is really not very unlike the Greek um, mathematical and ontological framework. The Chinese way to think about the world is not to reduce, but to embrace all quantities. So there isn't this kind of moral aesthetic struggle as in the Greek philosophy between larger numbers and smaller numbers. There isn't a kind of less is more uh, uh, framework, uh, you know, as almost like a moral struggle in life, um, as the modernists have demonstrated in the past century. In the Chinese uh, cultural context, more is more, less is less, and it's as simple as that. This is really why the 10,000 things stands there as a symbol, or as, a, as a representation of that kind of larger set of things, unable And and to be reduced to anything smaller, it's a bit like kind of uh, (laughs) Borges's the map of the empire is, you know, being the size of the empire itself. Um, This is not to say that there isn't any ordering system. It's just it just means that the ordering system is a different one, and that one needs to be understood. Uh, How can you actually live? Within a myriad of things, without any system of ordering, that's certainly not um, the case. So, in China, when you think about numbers and quantity, and what's more appropriate to understand is not mathematics but numerology. Uh, the Chinese have been, you know, certainly uh, have been very good at managing numbers and thinking through numbers, what it means, and so on. But it's not strictly a Greek mathematics. Um, So that is the kind of first step of explaining what that section means. Uh, I go through this or we went through this um, because it is important. It really produces a tangible, visible uh, effect on how cities were produced. And it just just simply that there are many, many things in Chinese cities and people are not bothered by the large number of things organized uh, in in a particular way. And if you walk through a Chinese urban space and uh, the the noise and the, you know, visual uh, richness and the basically accumulation of vast number of signs and commodities and colors and sounds and so on. So this is really not something that's bothering uh, people. Instead, it is seen to be a manifestation of 10,000 things. Um, So uh, the second step of explaining that section through the three cities that's included in, in the book is really how it's 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 kind of refers to or always grounded in the question how many is too many for a community so so in this case uh while you know the way the city specialized the uh, kind of economic functions um seems to be kind of out of proportion you know too much uh, in uh, many other cultural contexts in China it it was not a problem it's not a problem and they uh they the city is basically dedicated everything from family to village enterprises and to large international companies to one singular purpose um, and that's really quite astonishing uh uh, the scale of it is astonishing. Of course, you know, in uh, the history of urbanism, you see cities specializing in something, but never to this extent. Uh, you know, you can see um, uh, um, areas, say, in the history of industrialization in, in Europe, uh, cities specialize, but not quite to the purity and the extent and the dedication of these uh, Chinese cities, and often uh, focusing on one singular product, you know, the blue jeans, for instance, and which we have a whole chapter on, uh, describing the city of Xingtang um, uh, with with its entire urban, uh, cultural, and social and. Uh, technical infrastructure dedicated to that single task. Um, So so this is really uh, a way of explaining uh, this kind of astonishing fact of the expansion of the scale and the dedication of of monofunctional towns and cities uh, in China. Uh, Our, of course, argument is that it can only happen because of this particular cultural um, makeup and the, the, the way in which the culture is um, more uh, sympathetic, thats put it away, if not function as an encouragement of that kind of urban development.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because what we're basically seeing is kind of like a manifestation of the collectivist idea in support of industrial and, I dare say, capitalist concerns, but it's not as simple as, you know, I think a lot of people just interpret it as, well, China is the West's factory and they make things for the West. But what you're showing is that, you know, these these societies and these cities form in particular ways that are, are specific to to China and the way that people have always organize themselves, or at least have organized themselves for centuries. Uh, you know, and, and so this idea of capitalism with Chinese characteristics, this is the first time that I've really seen it um, explained in a 3D kind of uh, fashion, um, not just a, uh, a sort of, you know, there's always an implication that, uh, you know, it's, it's just a case of borrowing ideas from the West and sort of trying them on but it's really not that. Um, and I, I lived in China for two years, so I I know a little bit about uh, the culture and a little bit about how people perceive things. And it really is different. Um, and you definitely can walk through a city that would, as a monoculture, probably seem very sort of deadening in the Western context, and it's quite vibrant uh, just because of the level of investment that people seem to have in it. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Like people living among their work, um, is kind of a one way to put it.
1: Yeah. They're not kind of morally aesthetically troubled by that reality. That's unique. I mean, I really appreciate your response to the book and I was just, I cannot have hoped a better response uh, to the book. And that was indeed the intention and to say that China is a factory of the West. Uh, is um, uh, uh, not uh, considering the history of Chinese uh, commodities production, and it's basically um, a feature of how Chinese societies uh, have organized itself historically. You know, from you can argue that from 10th century Song Dynasty or Ming Dynasty, and China were producing. In this fashion, for China itself, but also for exports. You know, the export of, um, you know, in Sun Dynasty might be porcelain or uh, the white porcelain, not the blue and blue and white. Um, but also nails, and you know, and all kinds of things. and, and of course, late Ming Dynasty. This is uh, talking about uh, fourteenth to sixteenth century of um of all kinds of uh products um so so historically uh at that time full-fledged globalization uh was not a reality and China was already producing in that way so so it, it really is a misunderstanding It's part of you know larger set of misunderstandings of Chinese
0: cities this book is trying to address and some of the things, you know, moving on to the next uh, section, um, which was uh, called figuration, you know, where we are talking about, in some cases, the direct um, commodification of Western uh, typologies like Thames Town, which is outside of uh, Shanghai. It's a, it's a town that's basically a replica of an English village uh, but again, with you know Chinese characteristics, there's another one called Hallstatt, which is after a, a city in uh, Austria. Um, it's interesting that you put Lujiazui in here with that because I obviously there's parallels between Thames Town, a simulacra of an English village, Hallstatt, a simulacra of a Austrian village. Lujiazui, of course, is a big, sophisticated commercial district. Um, and then I guess we may as well mention the, other, the others, uh, including Nanhui New City, which is a large sort of university-focused town around a f- artificial circular lake. Uh, one of the first things you see as you're coming in uh, to land at Shanghai, um, uh, Pudong Airport is this Nahue City. And then Hongdian, uh, uh, another thing entirely, which is kind of like, if you can imagine Universal Studios and people living in it, it's like a world full of extras waiting to be called up in the next epic movie. Um, predominantly, you know, interestingly, we talk about the first group of uh, uh, cities being sort of about export production, but Hangdian is is there. They're making movies pretty much for domestic consumption. And so, what 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 causes all these things to be grouped together in your mind? Yeah, it's
1: a very interesting uh, question. Uh, Of course, the 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 reason for grouping them together is the concept of figuration. And figuration, it really started with um, our fascination with uh, language, and I really believe that uh, together with many uh, uh, linguists who you know have done research in how languages impact on how we think. Uh, Personally, I learned to speak and use English as an adult. Uh, So so that transition certainly was an intellectual transition. It's not just kind of picking up a tool that you use uh, from time to time. Uh, Languages have an impact on how you think. And this is really, uh, you know, I, I have to break down this explanation in two parts. Again, this is part one of the understanding that that the Chinese language, or more uh, precisely, we should describe it as a Chinese writing system. Because if you only consider sounds, you would be looking at 20 different languages in China. But as a writing system, it is a singular one. And this is really what troubled Western linguists enormously. Because there's a one school of thought basically arguing that there isn't one Chinese language. And of course, I'm on the camp of believing that it is one. It's really the writing system that is the central instrument. Uh, So it's interesting that the language works on the principle of using shapes as a fundamental strategy rather than sounds. So if you look at you know this is really the kind of indo-european language family uh family and versus the synthetic language family if you look at the indo-european languages they invariably use uh some kind of abstract symbol letters and alphabet to uh record sound so so the alphabet was created as the greeks did as a system uh, as abstract as possible, uh, that there was devoid of shapes. So you cannot really imagine the shapes of a word that describes a thing in the world. And the Chinese language is quite the opposite. So you have kind of pros and cons and they're really very interesting historical debates on, you know, how and how not this language is functioning, and whether it's a backward or you know progressive or you know. There's, I mean, the the consensus in the West over the past hundred years was that it is really immature uh, phonetic system uh, in need of improvement. To me, that's really a little arrogant and not quite understanding how the language works. And very often, those linguists uh, have an imperfect um, mastery of the language uh, in any case. Uh, what is interesting uh, is um, probably uh, I, I would want to mention maybe two scholars. And one lived in the 19th century. Uh, uh, it's Wilhelm von uh, Humboldt, uh, who, who's not His brother was a naturalist, but he was a a diplomat and a linguist. And uh, he wrote something that's very interesting about Chinese language in terms of comparing it with Sanskrit, um, uh, in which uh, he he argued that that Sanskrit and Chinese uh, represented two extreme ends of linguistic uh, capacities or capabilities of humans. And one very much focused on the use of shapes and the other on the phonetic, um, uh, on the sounds uh, and, and how then they developed uh, grammar in Sanskrit and no grammar in Chinese. So uh, pretty interesting discussion in terms of how the Greeks then, because of the I mean, if you see the Greek ancient Greek language as, a, as some kind of parallel to Sanskrit, um, uh, if you think about the Indo-European language uh, spread and transmission, um, the, the ancient Greeks, Humboldt argued that we're not able to think in generality. They were kind of imprisoned by its own specific grammatical construct, they imprison to think specificities, not generalities. Uh, the Chinese is quite the opposite. So really, they have different features and capabilities. And so that really hasn't an, has an impact on how we think, um, how we not only think, but how we philosophize. And not only philosophers and how we actually create products that we think is morally and aesthetically attractive so this is really part of the explanation that's kind of laid out in the book um, uh, the, the the second author i want to introduce is francois julian uh, currently living one of the most outstanding thinkers uh in the world today who uh who who discussed, I don't want to go into details, but for those of you who are interested in Francois Julien, you should really go and read him. Many of his works have been translated into uh, English. And and what he argued was uh, that there's such a thing called thought language, thinking language in combination, that produces particular sets of ideas and particular sets of uh, objects. So, um, so this is really the kind of first part of the explanation of figuration, that, that to me, uh, figuration is a key feature of the Chinese language that does not quite exist in indo European languages. Um, so if, if we take that as a thought language reality, Uh, of China. This is something that that people, uh, Western scholars, don't fully often understand because they don't really use the language on a daily basis. They kind of look at, you know, and many of them have a rudimentary uh, understanding of the language and then very often interpreted through the Indo-European alphabet-based language understanding systems. so in a way, uh, if you begin with figuration, then, then we would then have to kind of understand how Chinese cities embraced or created shapes, styles, you know, particular kind of aesthetic objects uh, in the city. So, so the second part of the explanation of how these are grouped together under this concept uh, this this uh, uh, five different cities is really to see how distinctive shapes were understood and manipulated as figures uh, in in the mind so so the way harshdad can be understood in the same way as luja dre is that one is a, a kind of you know a figure of a distant exotic uh, uh um, city uh, brought here to kind of increase the value of real estate development, uh, as the essay explained in how strategic it was. Uh, so, so that was a kind of a function of a figure. So, Lu Zhe-Jui has a different figure. That figure is modernity. So, so in a way, modernity would have certainly. Uh, not been a appropriate frame to of understanding if it's imagined as a figure but then that's what happens in China you know modernity is about taking the figure away um, in some sense and in China it kind of returns to reality as a figure so lujare as a skyline it is almost like a figurated version of some kind of modern city that Fortunately or unfortunately, came to be represented by a skyline uh, of something—Seattle, New York, Manhattan, uh, uh, Los Angeles, or something—you know, like that—that that kind of um, uh, figurative imagination. Uh, uh, so, so for Heng Dian, I mean, for for Nan Hui, that 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 city with a huge circle and that's almost like a very simplistic understanding of of the gigantic circle and pretty attractive shape for um for many throughout history to use the circle as a guiding uh, geometry for cities um for uh that that film set real life kind of town uh It's fascinating because it is really built around the figure of time, uh, you know, like time or timelessness. And uh, if we go into the discussion of time, we will probably need quite a lot of space to uh, explain uh, how the Chinese time differs from the Greek time uh, in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's layered or linear, or uh, this is really quite a whole set there's a whole set of really interesting discussion on time again i would recommend a a book called the silent transformations by uh, francois Julien if you're interested in how the greeks and the chinese imagine
0: time uh, philosophically well that that's a lot to unpack there i will definitely uh, put the uh, author recommendations in the show notes for those who are, are are following along here. Um, I definitely see parallels between the the idea of Hangdian as a literal movie set town and Lujiazui, the district outside of uh, downtown Shanghai or a kind of a new downtown for Shanghai as a sort of skyscraper museum or a model city. Um, I mean, one of the things that's most striking about it is that you, you see all these skyscrapers arranged very neatly and almost in uh, a procession, like, you know, soldiers lining up for inspection. Um, and it's all organized around a, a an oval-shaped ground, which has a historical building on it, which is kind of marooned there amidst the traffic. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting because the, the idea seems to be that yeah, it is almost like a museum of modernity or a statement of this is how we're going to do modernity and we're going to do it all at once. You know, it all flew up in just a matter of 10, 10 years or so.
1: Yeah, of course, you, know, you understand the bond in Shanghai and that is the unspoken part of the Lu Jia Dre because, because it is only by standing on the bond and looking at it that Lu Jia makes sense.
0: Well, exactly. The most spectacular place from which to regard uh, Lu Lougjazway is from the Bund, which is, which is the the kind of uh, the colonial uh, embankment uh, on which all the historical buildings from the colonial era are are placed. So that, n- not to put too fine a point on it, right? It's interesting that we're having this conversation on the uh, uh, the dawn of the next generation of the Xi Jinping era, in which. Mm-hmm. You know, China seems to be taking a more inward turn. Do you think that um, anything about what you've observed in this massive urbanization with Chinese characteristics um, in the context of of opening up economically is going to change or move in a different direction now that the political environment seems a little bit more uh, conservative?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, um, of course, you know there's a lot of speculation and guessing that's that's going on in terms of how China might develop, and it looks like to me that that the architecture is going to be become, become a little bit more official. Again, this is really not new, and. Uh, in many ways, I think, uh, you know, in the past dynasties, and there were uh, much stricter building regulations in terms of what you should do. Uh, it's interesting that a couple of years ago, and there was already this kind of directive coming from the government that no more uh, weird looking buildings. And that to me was almost like the kind of opening episode <laughs> of a much larger um, state-directed aesthetic uh, principles uh, taking place. And I think that's going to come into force. And you're going to note the decline of small uh, private um, architectural practices and doing uh, unique works and the rise or increasing dominance of state-sponsored players and producing uh, I would say competent, high quality, but ultimately um, uh, 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 buildings that fulfill the purpose of the um, the state norm. Uh, so, so that's something uh, that might be a direction that uh, China is headed.
0: I mean, it's interesting because that that kind of provides a segue into the the third part of the book. Well, the third and the fourth part actually. Um, mm-hmm. The third part is called group action, and it's kind of about some of the um, the ways in which you know collective action manifests itself architecturally or urbanistically. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 most interesting example to me was the Huashi Village, which which is like. Some A phenomenon that you just wouldn't see uh, in most of the West, which is you've got, you know, what's ostensibly a rural village that was built on collectivist principles, but it has an enormous skyscraper at the center, which is largely decorative. And then you've got the residences set, you know, arrayed around it in a group of pagoda like structures. And then you've got a lot of farmland that is, I believe, collectively managed. Uh, what, what is the story with that and and why did you decide to include it in the in the book well
1: uh, first of all I think it's it's a village um, presenting itself uh, or, or collection of villages many villages a uh, grouped together presenting themselves as a city and they really have urban aspirations um, but they also don't want to do the city in the normative way and they really want to build their the dream city. So that really, uh, I thought that, that indeed, Hua she was a kind of village dream uh, coming true uh, in terms of wanting to have everything, you know, the pagodas and the ultra. I mean, they would have considered um, that huge 70-story glass tower as a uh, ultra-modern, uh, you know, Thing. so so this is a, a again a version of the Bond versus Luja Dre. Here it is the pagodas versus the skyscraper built in concrete and glass. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I mean if you go inside I think the book detailed a little bit about what what's going on inside the building and there's a hotel. Uh, there's a huge huge uh, banquet hall. And uh, there's all kinds of really jaw-dropping stuff that you probably never see in a normal city. So uh, to us, that trip uh, and, and also staying in a hotel room was just kind of an experience that upsets all your preconceived ideas about cities. Um, anyway, so so the inclusion of that, of course, is really to understand the collectivization process in, in China's uh, uh, rural area, which um, uh, is a tradition again goes back to a long way, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is something that that I think connects with the distinction that the book is trying to make between the Western possessive individualism, uh, which is no foundation for some form of capitalism, um, and China's kind of group action, which is uh, somewhat the uh, great sameness that Confucius was promoting. Uh, You see this, you know, not only around the time of the Qing dynasty, which is uh, the first Chinese dynasty, uh, happening in uh, about 200 AD, uh, which lasted about 16 years, Uh, but the the ensuing Han dynasty took on some of the features of uniformity, uh, not only of family uh, society city but also a national infra- state infrastructure in terms of building walls and canals and roads and so on uh, so there was this kind of great tradition of building uh, uh, kind of uniformly uh, shaped quarters and you know cities and this is this this was known as Yi and it was really it is all in one you know it's it's not it's not the kind of uh, American uh, diversity in one, but it's like uniformity in one. Um, so that's really interesting uh, to to note, and it's a very different cultural um, framework. And w- without the understanding of which, uh, it's really hard to understand places like Huashi and how deeply rooted.
0: It is uh in 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 culture and history yeah i mean i think your first encounter with it might be that, uh, or you know we sent out a, a radio telescope signal and the aliens came back with this like we think this is what you know a collective farm looks like the future um but in fact it's very much as you say deeply rooted in the long history which is not easily perceived um on first glance it, it's very um Abstracted. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Tongyi, uh, which is this idea of togetherness or all, all, all as one. Uh, the office where I was managing the local office of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat was at Tongyi University. So, uh, and it was right across the street from the last uh, uh, subject of, of in your book, which is the Tongji Architectural and Design Institute. Um, so I was very, <laughs> I was struck to see that because most of the book doesn't really talk about architecture and the design process. It talks at a larger scale with good reason. Um, what what made you um, sort of fixate on on Tjad? And do you do you think that that's emblematic of the kind of firm that's going to go forward under, you know, the kind of the new political environment or the new social environment? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there's really no a
1: comparison of that kind of production capacity in in other parts of the world and we made a comparison between tjad and gensler and um, both uh huge architectural operations and and from the the, the graph uh, that we produce and you can see how differently they they are run as this enormous entities of uh um, producers of architecture. Uh, Yes, I think uh, the reason why we are kind of, as you say, fixated on Tongji, uh, TJAD, was that I visited so many times, even before they moved to this new uh, extraordinary looking um, office location, they were in a much more modest environment. And I was already seeing The roots of their expansion and over many, many years of uh, taking students to visit um, uh, Shanghai and and, and TJAD. And I thought that the transformation and the way in which they could uh, lead uh, high end oxygen production is extraordinary. And of course, you know, there's a context. Um, we, we should all understand that there are just simply hundreds of these things, these entities in China, uh, many of them are equally as good, if not better, than, than uh, TJAD, and like the Beijing um, BAID or, uh, um, or the, what was formerly kind of the Design Institute of the Chinese uh, Ministry of Construction, uh, uh, known today as the uh, TAD, uh, uh, today, um, uh, very, there's, there's a whole class of architectural firms. Um, uh, I'm familiar, you know, like fundamentally different from the architecture firms in, 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 uh, in the West and in America, uh, producing huge amount of floor areas, uh, in China now increasingly, in Afri- in East Africa, Africa in general, and in South America, in uh, Central Asia, so so you s- you see this kind of capacity uh, bleeding into the world uh, of uh, urbanism uh, uh, in in increasing speed. So that's really the reason why we were seeing the projection of this capability, and that's going to increase, no doubt, uh, in the years to come.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that uh, certainly seemed to be underway um, under my observation when I was there, and it seems to only have accelerated. But, um, you know, if, if, I think if people are concerned about the viability of the Chinese design and construction industry based on the new restrictions that have come into play about weird architecture, about you know um, excessively tall buildings they needn't be too concerned because this is also going to be an export market for for china i think into the into the latin america into africa central asia as you say and these firms are primed to do it
1: yeah yeah i, I think the what what they're kind of uh, relying on is indeed their reliability the ability to Come up with designs and build it really fast, and uh, and with with uh, reasonably uh, good quality, and at, at you know a cost that, that uh, that's controllable. This is something that that certainly, I mean, like um, I, I just in the recently to be published, um, Routledge Handbook of the Chinese Architecture. And I contributed a chapter called The State Function of Architecture. This is really something that that goes all the way back to the first Chinese state in which architecture was not seen to be an aesthetic or private uh, investment, but a state investment. And architecture has a state function. And that's why if you look at the history of Chinese architecture, the documents were all about state regulations, you know, what and what. Uh, what you should and what you should not build, and in what scale and what material you should use. So that regulation um, is not necessarily in the way of architectural production. It will be in the way of private architectural production, but, but it will certainly enhance state architectural production, which uh, today is a global enterprise.
0: Yes, and I think a lot of people may not be aware of this, but a lot of the private skyscrapers that have gotten the headlines over the last 20 years were largely uh, underwritten by the state or state-owned entities. So it's not as if this is a, actually as big of a shift as as one might think. No, you're right in a way that,
1: that of course, the state today is far more sophisticated than the states of the Qing and Han dynasty, Um, so we uh,
0: should bear that in mind. I really appreciate you uh, spending the time with me here, and uh, we've gone in a a bunch of different directions that I I could not have anticipated. Um, There's a lot of depth uh, in this study, and I, I recommend it to anyone who's interested in really getting a handle on how how Chinese thought is organized into physical space and how that dovetails with language, which is something I've never encountered before in, the, in literature. So I, I applaud you for putting that together. Um, it's Typological Drift, Emerging Cities in China, and it's authored by Shichao Chao Li, who joined me today, and Esther Lorenz. Uh, it's out from... Uh, Architecture research and design publications. And uh, thanks so much.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure.